Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're the creators of Just A Story Podcast. Have you ever wondered how urban legends get started? Besides a friend of a friend? Well, each week we explore the world of fears, fables, myths, and misdeeds, and the way these themes link together to form lasting legends and contemporary folklore. From timeless ghost stories like La Llorona, to classic urban legends like The Hook, we find out that no matter how absurd these urban legends may seem, they're hardly ever just a story. Hi, this is Daniel Foytek, and thank you for tuning in for our Chris Massacre 5 holiday special. We have a great episode for you today, some great stories that have been submitted to us by some names that you may already know and some that you may be hearing for the first time. Before we dive deep into today's episode, I do want to thank our season seven sponsor, the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. I also want to thank everyone who has taken the time to rate and review the show in iTunes to help others find their way here. But most especially, I want to say thank you to those of you who have chosen to support us on Patreon. So much time away from family, from friends, from sitting on the couch and drinking a beer and watching Star Trek, go into creating this podcast. A show like The Wicked Library takes a lot of time and effort. All of us who create the show have full-time jobs, and we've never gotten to a point where we can pay the writers and the artists and the composers who help create the show. So at this time, I'd like to ask for those of you who find value in the show, those of you who are entertained by it, enjoy it, use it as a way to keep yourself busy when you're working or when you're commuting, however you listen to the show, if it has value to you, I'd really like to ask for your support so we can get to a point in 2017 where we can actually pay the people that help create the show. We're very, very far away from doing that right now. I do not want to dismiss the folks that have helped out because it does help us cover some of our hosting costs and things like that. But there's a lot of you out there that listen. There's almost 14,000 of you that listen to this podcast. You can contribute as little as $2 a month or as much as you like. But if it does have some value and you want to hear us continue to make this show, you want us to keep bringing it to you so that you can enjoy it, we really do need your support in 2017. There's things that we want to do with the show, but most importantly, we want to reward the artists, the authors, and the composers. Without them, there would be no Wicked Library podcast for you to enjoy. So please, for 2017, consider what you think the show is worth and help us out with rewarding those folks that make it possible. Our Patreon page is patreon.com forward slash wicked library. And now, on behalf of all of us, Merry Chris Massacre. Enjoy this special episode of the Wicked Library. Kitties, 
Have a seat and relax. I'm your library. There's nothing to jingle your bells yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. It's going to be a dark sleigh ride. We'll leave the Christmas lights on for now. No talking. It's Christmasica time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> This first tale was featured in last year's Chris Massacre 4, back by popular demand. Here is A Yuletide Ride by yours truly. Lock your doors. It doesn't matter. Hide the children. It doesn't matter. I am coming. Now is the time of the long, dark nights of winter when spirits howl at your windows in the chill air. You feel the cold and the dark. Deep inside, you feel the primal fear. Trim your trees, light your candles, sing your songs, pretend to feel safe. I am coming. My minions have finished their long work. I watch as they fill my dark carriage with sack upon sack of gifts. I dance as they tack my great beasts with leather and bridle and reins. I laugh as the beasts snort and snicker and prance in place. Gather for protection. Laugh to cover your fear. Drink to bring sleep. Pray against the night. I am coming. Now my pyre burns laden with hulfur and fear and missile. The holy smoke rises and I call to the ancient ones who sired me. The sky ripples and glows with ethereal light. The barrier thins, and I prepare for my entry into your realm. I come now. From the great north I ride, through the dark night I soar, I come hunting as you sleep into your homes. I am here. You sleep. Your children sleep. Did you leave offerings? Some of the best horror comes from when we take a look at the common things, the safe things, the things we believe are always going to be the same way they were, and turn that on its head. In this next tale by Aaron Vleck, we'll take a fresh look at the night before Christmas. Hark the Herald by Aaron Vleck. 
It was the night before Christmas, and all through the house a peaceful quiet reigned. My wife and I had dined on Chinese and chocolates, imbibed good strong drink and eggnog, then retired for a long winter's nap. We'd never had children, so the tree downstairs was heaped with grown-up toys, mostly of the astronomical variety, an interest that utterly absorbed the long-held fancies and passions of us both. We never regretted producing no offspring because the nature of the world and the condition of humanity, utterly loathsome to us both, was not a thing we wished to visit upon anyone else, especially the young and innocent. I dozed, listening to my wife snore and reveling in the peaceful relaxation of the cold, cloudless night, while the warming glow of sugar plum wine danced in my head. Deep in my mind, there arose such a clatter, and it dawned on me, with a groan, just what was the matter. I had left the telescope out, up on the roof, on the terrace I had built for the purpose. So I sprang from my bed and was away in a dash, tore open the attic doors and was out into the cold in a flash. My gaze naturally was drawn to the firmament, and what I saw almost caused me to lose my balance and fall into the snow. A great shimmering river of light streaked across the sky, the most fabulous sighting of shooting stars I had ever witnessed. The light on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to the objects below. Odd, I thought, because no such sighting was foretold in the papers or journals or the websites and other obscure portals of starry wisdom to which we so faithfully subscribed. In the sky, a single point of light appeared amidst a vast inky wave that flared bright as the sun before it descended toward earth like a spider on a silken thread. I watched as it turned high overhead, once, twice, and again, then continued its downward course toward me. After several minutes, the thing landed without a sound, on the roof of my very own house. I stood in awe, certain I must surely be dreaming. There, just beyond the chimney, sat a magnificent black sleigh, complete with eight horned creatures out of legend, reined in like ghoulhounds. Their claws skittered on the shingles, while their glowing eyes bore in on my own with menace and mystery and mirth. But it was the occupant of the sleigh that I marveled truly upon. He leapt up from his coach and surveyed the scene, then he headed towards the chimney, the telescope, and me. He was draped all in furs, red, silver, and black, and a cape and a hood of crimson and gold. But his face was obscured from my sight by a fluttering veil the color of night. I gasped and would have screamed, but my throat was caught in such a grip that I could not breathe. This strange old driver so lively and quick. I knew then for certain this was hardly St. Nick. In fear, I cowered before him, not daring to wonder what he might have in store for me. Then I watched as he grabbed up our telescope and whisked it away and into his sleigh. 
what possessed me to run after him, to play the hero, trying to retrieve my wife's Christmas present from this nebulous thief, I cannot rightly say. I reached out and grabbed at him as he leapt back into the sleigh, but all I caught was a handful of his coattails that let out a tinkling of a hundred tiny glass bells in the breeze. Then he cracked a whip over the heads of his hell beasts and was away. I raced to the edge of the roof and watched as he banked low over my lawn and then back up to my rooftop. These coursers, they flew. It was then that I slipped and fell, landing with a thud in the back of that great black sleigh. It swiftly cleared the roof of my house and then shot away over the rooftops of my town as it lay wrapped in dreaming's soft blanket of oblivion. We stopped at many more houses where he spoke not a word, but went straight to his work just long enough to gather up what tools and trinkets of astronomy might be lying about. Then we were away, tearing across the sky that opened up like a great gaping black mouth that swallowed us whole. I couldn't hazard a guess or make a commentary upon where we were, other than to say that utter silence prevailed, and no familiar heavenly configuration led me to feel in the least bit at ease in the company of this specter. Then we began to plummet once again toward earth in a free fall, and I clung to the sleigh lest I be ripped out and flung into open space. We slowed. Then we circled the earth, dipping and diving over cities and towns, great and small. I felt then a hideous, undulating malevolence like a foul breath wafting from the earth in an oily wave, while the commander of the sleigh emitted a deep, echoing chuckle at all that we beheld below. As I watched the man-creature command his team, I thought the ruffling hems of his great red and crimson robes had become wings or long, wavering tendrils or the flapping, fluttering flange of a great red ray. But then, no, it was a man again, and the voice somewhat resembled that of a very old but still incalculably powerful man. Of a sort, I suppose. We covered the whole of the globe in a night, while I remained at his feet filled with a dread. Oh, how I wished I was back safe in my bed, and at long last rid of this fright. The air was heavy and thick all around, and weighed me down with that sense of impending doom, like when you know that something awful has happened but you're not sure yet what it is. Then the one all in red and black, crimson and gold, opened his mouth and started to sing in a tongue I was glad was nothing like my own. He bellowed and wailed and preached on and on while I cowered with my hands over my ears, my eyes shut tight against the sight. When at last he fell silent, as if in reply, the deepest places among the heavens cried out with a sigh. We banked sharply to the sky and sped across space while the planet lay sleeping below in the doom of my race. I knew at once that empty space was not but a myth of man. I felt in my bones and the soft folds of my mind gone mad that space was quickly filling up and was quite crowded 
with things unseen, with those who came to watch all that was to befall the earth and the fate of its wayward children. That unknown firmament, Eldebaran it was, had burst into a ceiling of light like an ocean of exploding suns. Then I heard that awful, terrible, horrible sound that tore through my mind like a million dying screams shredding the canopy of heaven. I forced myself to look upward as the sky went dark overhead. In the place where the black stars hang, those stars had begun to fall. We continue with our theme of Santa not being what he seems in this next tale by Lane Lloyd of The Sable Podcast. The Sable Podcast is a dark horror fiction podcast. You can find that in iTunes, Stitcher, pretty much everywhere where you get your podcasts, you can pick up The Sable Podcast. And let me tell you, boy, is it wicked. Go check it out, The Sable Podcast. But until then, let's enjoy a special tale written just for us by Lane Lloyd. The Clause, in which young Anthony Perkins makes a grave mistake, by Lane Lloyd of The Sable Podcast. It was a rather horrific-looking creature. That much was for certain. Mr. Creedsley had promised something that would strike fear in Joe's eyes. But Anthony would have never imagined something so grotesque, so wicked, so absolutely perfect. To compare it to a human would be a disservice, for such a thing was clearly more complex than any Homo sapien. A monolith on two legs, its gluttonous form was encased in a thick crimson liquid that shivered and rippled with each ragged breath it took. Two massive antlers were stretching out from what Anthony assumed was its head, the tips of the horns scraping against the classroom walls. If this thing had eyes, none could say, but Anthony could feel it staring him down. Before a word could be said, a short chubby boy with curly blonde hair stepped in, a confident grin on his face as he cracked his knuckles. All right, ass kisser, he began. Time to show you what happens when... when... All pride, all confidence, vanished from his form, leaving him cold and shivering as he stared at the beast. The monster acted in kind, turning to face the bully. Oh, oh. It gargled, moving a hand out before itself. Naughty. Very, very naughty. It sounded like every word brought the beast pain, its chest heaving. Instead of bringing darling Anthony misery, how about we make you a source of joy? Joe tried to move from the door but he was locked in place. Please, please, he pleaded, sweat trickling down his pudgy face, 
I'll, I'll be good. Honest, don't hurt me. Too late for that. Much too late. And with that, the creature flicked its wrist, Joe's body crumpling to the floor in a dead heap. Anthony watched in stunned horror. Though he'd be lying if he said this didn't bring some pleasure to him. Joe's body writhed about, twisting in ways humans weren't meant to twist. His bones shattered, his skin tore from the stress, until what laid before them was something akin to a human bicycle. Joe's eyes moving about, wishing so desperately to scream without a mouth. The beast chuckled, sitting the bike up on its new tires, pushing the thing of metal and muscle towards Anthony, who began to crack a smile. Merry Christmas, Anthony, it chirped, absolutely giddy. Anthony gripped the bike's handlebars, watching the muscles pulsate. He grinned wider, almost laughing. Merry Christmas, Claus, he chimed back. Now, let's hit up the locker room. I want to give those jocks a piece of my mind. Well, we can't let Santa have all the fun this year. Taking a dark look at a Christmas classic, season six favorite from the Great White North, S.L. Dixon, brings you a very twisted look at what happens when you trade toques for top hats. Unk, the Snowman, by S.L. Dixon. Frowns tugged at pink corners, and tears built behind soft dams. It was Christmas, but it didn't feel very much like Christmas. Arnie Clement told his three daughters to stay inside and... Don't look outside the window. It's for the best. I know it's sad, but it's what's got to happen. There was a pop and an echo that carried over the fields and into the woods. It was heartbreaking but there were no good options when it comes to a sick like that. For two weeks, Scruffy Clement played along, or rather put up with the festive nature of the holidays. The girls had donned the poor mutt one of Santa's elves and tied a red toque with a fuzzy white puffball to his head. Three days before Christmas, the youngest, Donna, asked, You think Scruffy ran away because we put the hat on him? Berta shook her head to comfort the girl, but deep down thought it possible that the worn-out old dog had indeed experienced enough of the family life. If that was the case, the dog had a wicked sense of timing. It was bright and cold outside when the family huddled within heard the strange whine. Something like a holiday miracle. Scruffy had returned Christmas Eve morn. Scruffy! screeched the middle child, Deanie. The dog greeted Arnie with a snarl, red eyes and foam dripping from his gums. Oh, for Pete's sake. And at Christmas, he said, as he tugged on the dog's collar with plump snowmobile mitts covering his cautious hands, avoiding the blooming case of rabies 
the poor animal wore like a new coat. The discussion was brief, as there was really only one option. The girls begged that their father wait until the morning to see if maybe Santa would fix him. I'll even trade back all the presents, said Deanna, the eldest. Being Christmas, Arnie and Berta agreed to wait. They knew the hard truth. There are no magic cures in Santa's bag. And yet, they waited because the girls asked, and it was Christmas. The day became night, and night became morning. The girls sat with their gift-laden stockings in their laps as the shot echoed over the property. Still in his outdoor clothes, a big cool whiff of the outside trailing him, Arnie whispered to Berta. She grinned with honest emotion and rushed away the girls. Arnie greeted his daughters and put on a smile. No girls of mine are going to be so daggum gloomy. Not on Christmas. Not on my watch, he said. The girls looked up, still in their jammies, still beneath the once gift-laden stockings, stacks of treasure piled about them, and hope reigned in their eyes. Did Santa bring Scruffy a miracle? Deanie Clement asked. Arnie's heart hitched a second as he felt Scruffy's little Christmas hat in his pocket and said, No, dear, but the weather's fine and the snow's fit for packing, so get your snowsuits and your booties. We're building us a snow fella. The girls saw the effort and tried to reciprocate the false glee their father expressed for their sake and the sake of the season. Soon enough, the girls forgot about Scruffy. They sang about Frosty and tossed clumps of snow at their parents. By and by, the hardy snow fella came together, standing nearly six feet tall once they'd finished rolling and packing. Berta Clement pulled the ready goodies from her pockets and began dressing the big white man. Three fat blue buttons rescued from an old flannel jacket fixed the abdomen. A corncob pipe that once belonged to a Halloween costume from the days before children provided the illusion of a mouth. A carrot from the crisper, bright and chubby, did its duty and gave the man his nose. A pair of cat's-eye marbles, thumpers, one orange and green and the other blue and silver, served his eyes. Deanna looked and quickly fetched two necessary pieces to make the man whole. Birch sticks became bony arms, the left hand stretching three fingers and the right stretching four. Finished called Berta. Just needs a name. Let's call him Uncle Lou, because he has a big round head like Uncle Lou, said Donna. The family joined the youngest in a laugh, but settled for an abbreviated version. It was wise to shorten the name to just Unc, just in case Uncle Lou stopped by for lunch, as he often did on holidays. The five Clements stood around Unc the Snowman, quickly coming to the same conclusion. Something wasn't right. He's missing something, said Deanie. He's got no hat, Deanna shouted after a moment. Arnie felt his pocket for Scruffy's hat and thought, good as any other. He placed the hat on Unc the Snowman and stood back. A shiver rode the air, as if a chill emanated from the frosty figure. What's happening to his eyes? asked Donna, curious fear in her voice. They all saw it and all knew. It was a Christmas miracle of sorts. And just like the song, there must have been some magic in that old hat. 
The cat's eye marbles changed tone. The carrot nose drooped in black rot. And bloody foam bubbled from around the corncob pipe. There wasn't any old magic in that hat. Girls, get on into the garage, said Arnie, recognizing the symptoms. This can't be, started Berta. Sub-zero flames leapt from the corncob pipe like a monster truck's exhaust stack. Scat! This snowfella's got the rabies, shouted Father. The girls screamed while Berta rushed them into the garage. Behind them, snow crunched and whumped. Arnie shouted obscenities, words not fit for Christmas. His spirit roared with righteous fury. The garage door slammed shut, and the trio of daughters looked out while Bert appeared over their shoulder. Unk the snowman had Arnie lifted into the air above his head. The snowman's mouth stretched an impossible distance, ready to catch the man dangling at the skinny birch bark fingertips, as if he were a worm or a goldfish. Daddy! shouted Deanie. Donna whimpered against Deanna's shoulder. Deanie was still as a flagpole. Berta cradled her girls. Unk the snowman glanced through the window, winked, and then dropped Arnie Clement down his frosty gullet. There was a splash of bloody foam that rose as the man landed somewhere in the bowels of the demonic snowman. What do we do, Mama? Deanna pleaded. Mother clicked the lock on the door and gazed in horror. Unk the snowman ambled toward them, pointing out his bony wooden digits. Mama, what do we do? Donna repeated. Unk the snowman tried the handle of the door and grimaced beyond the corncob pipe. The evil thing tapped on the glass and pointed down to the lock, as if asking for admittance so as to continue a murder spree. In the house, whispered Berta. What do we do? Donna screamed. Unk the snowman twisted at the handle, its reddened cat's eye peepers darkening with compounding anger when the lock remained solid. In the house and we'll call somebody. The glass shattered and the girls broke into the home, trying to pretend their mother's screams were war cries or victory songs. Uncertain of what to do or where to go, the girls returned to their gifts. It was Christmas after all. Donna held a rubber pony. Deanie combed the hair of a tall, busty, blonde doll. Deanna began stamping rhinestones onto the cuffs of her snow pants with her brand new bedazzler. Deanna began to sing, Frosty the snowman was tears streaming. Her sisters joined in, a jolly happy soul. They sang loudly to drown out the ever-approaching crunch of packing snow sliding across linoleum. Our next tale is by Samantha Pleasant Labah of the Just a Story podcast and Audio Dime Museum. Two fantastic podcasts. The Just a Story podcast is near and dear to my heart because it's an exploration of story and storytelling in the form of urban legends and myths, kind of the stories that we tell over and over again. And they delve deep into the stories behind the story and find out why we tell these stories. It's a really great show. I think you'll really enjoy it if you're a fan of stories and storytelling. And Audio Dime Museum, another show that I absolutely adore. If you're a fan of this show, if you're a fan of our other show, The Lift, it's something that's going to be right up your alley. It's narrated by Samantha. All the stories are written by her. 
And uh, it's a great way to get a taste of her narration style because you'll actually be hearing her narrate a couple stories later this season for the Wicked Library. So until then, why not check out Audio Dime Museum and the Just a Story podcast, which she does with her husband, Jake. Now, in our next story by Samantha, we find out that there are two sides to everything, even St. Nick. Together this time, by Samantha Pleasant Labah of the Just a Story podcast and Audio Dime Museum audio drama. It was quiet on the floor, except for a commercial-sized analog clock mounted securely above the double doors ticking away the seconds, and the scratching of Dr. Simon Scribner's fountain pen on the back few pages of his notepad. He was handed the case file as he reached the fourth floor, still shaking off snow and the temporal oddity of Christmas Day. They'd said it had to be him, though he was a man out of step with his field, far more taken with Freud and Jung than any newly minted psychiatrist should be. They'd said he was uniquely suited for the task. Simon strongly suspected that it had more to do with his superiors wanting to spend the holiday at home, but that didn't matter. He furiously composed his initial observations. Patient is a white male, mid to late 60s, obese, disheveled appearance, balding with white hair, long beard, many crumbs perceptible from a distance, appear to be mainly baked goods. The patient smells of sour milk, though does not seem to notice. Anosmia may be a symptom providing insight for diagnosis. Exhibits profuse rosacea on cheeks. Patient surrendered himself for 72-hour hold, fearing that he might be a danger to himself and others. Claimed he had done so at the urging of his wife. Not available for interview at the time of admission. Patient says she communicates only by post and may be difficult to reach as this is their busy season. Patient seems agitated and ill at ease. This will be my first interview with him. The lean analyst closed his notebook with a staccato snap and pushed his thick black glasses to a proper station on the bridge of his nose. Let's begin, shall we? He said to the man who was resting his forehead on the table between them. The patient moaned, seemingly in agreement. Very good. I'll just start the recorder. Another acquiescent moan followed his announcement. Would you please state your name? Nicholas Christopher Kringle, the fat man said, straightening himself in his chair and folding his hands on the table. Very good, Mr. Kringle. Call me Nick, he said, waving off the formality. Okay, Nick. Your wife is concerned, Simon said imploringly. Cordelia lets things get to her. She nags like you wouldn't believe. But I have to tell you, Dr. Scribner. Dr. Scribner. She may have a good reason to be worried. Oh, and why is that, Nick? Well, you see, I have these spells. Spells? Yeah. I lose time. Black out. You have no memory of what takes place when you black out? Zero. Zip. And when did this start? The fat man stroked his odorous beard in contemplation 
as the prim doctor sipped something from a takeout cup. Pinky extended, even when using styrofoam instead of bone china. Oh, I guess two, no, maybe three centuries ago. The doctor sputtered, dribbling what Nick could now tell was Earl Grey, hot, on the table. He quickly began wiping up the tea with a handkerchief that Nick suspected was monogrammed, even if he couldn't see it. I'm sorry, Nick. It sounded like you said centuries. With a twinkle in his eyes, Nick said, I did. Without breaking eye contact, the psychiatrist reached for his pad and with a flick of his wrist, opened to a new crisp page. Furrowing his eyebrows, he scribbled a word. He said, Tell me more about that, Nick. From across the table, Nick could clearly make out the word delusions in slanted scrawl. He sighed. Look, Doc, do you want to hear this or not? I'm listening. Well, back in those days, I lived on the continent. I had a bit of a reputation for being good under pressure, helping people sort things out when they were in a bind, kind of like you, I guess. Simon assured himself that they had nothing in common and continued his scribbling, offering only an absent-minded, go on. Well, after a while, the things the people in town wanted kept getting more and more elaborate. But somehow, I kept coming through. Like once, I paid for three girls to get married, threw the money down a chimney, and it landed in some stockings drying near a fireplace. Simon flipped back to the delusions page and tacked on, Of grandeur. This time, Nick didn't notice. He just kept telling his story pleased to finally get some things off his chest. So, word gets out, and soon everyone is hanging stockings up looking for money. And I managed for a while, but then I guess I overexerted myself. What were you doing exactly? This might sound crazy. Oh, say, I bet you hear that a lot anyway. I was making miracles for the townsfolk. This pronouncement was punctuated by the sharp sound of Simon's pen, underlining his previous statement, twice. How do these... Simon lifted his hands and made quotation marks in the air without dropping his pen. Miracles relate to your blackouts, Nick. One follows the other. First the miracle, then the blackout. Consistently? Close as I can figure. Interesting. So tell me about the first time you experienced a blackout, Simon said, touching his pen to his pursed lips. Around the time I was putting money down chimneys in the old country. Around then's when it happened, he mumbled. Now Nick was being evasive. The fat man was shuffling his big shiny boots on the linoleum floor, looking at the reflection of the fluorescent lights on the toes, and not Simon's bespeckled gaze. The young doctor pretended not to notice. And you've said you are not able to recall what happens when you have these spells. But when you came to that first time, did you discover any evidence of what might have transpired during the missing time? Nick clenched his fists and released them. Once. Twice. Three times. And slowly lifted his head. His jovial face had twisted into a snarl. He spoke pointedly. I found the barrels. I see, Simon said, 
glad to hear the words. The detectives would be pleased. Then, more boldly and evenly than he had expected, he asked, What was in the barrels, Nick? Nick shrugged, looking like a big sheepish boy. He was staring at the wall to his left with a sullen look on his face, now ignoring the doctor. His demeanor was changing rapidly. He was clearly exhibiting erratic behavior. Simon made note of the shifts, but pressed him again. What was in the barrels? Nick didn't respond. Simon gritted his teeth, shifting his weight in his metal chair. He decided to tell the story himself. I think I've heard about what happened back then. St. Nicholas finds the bodies of three murdered boys in barrels in the basement of a butcher's shop. He puts them back together, fixes them up good as new. It's a miracle. The church recognized it as such. Is that what you're referring to, Nick? Yes. The man, who now just seemed big, not fat, but solid mass, said Cooley, his eyes locked on Simon's. He had turned to face the doctor again. A good sign. The psychiatrist broke eye contact to glance down at the red light on the recorder before he began his next line of questioning. It was illuminated, so he said casually, You know, Nick, it's the damnedest thing. Three kids, boys, went missing last Christmas Eve. And about two months ago, police found some empty barrels in a storage unit after an anonymous tip led them there. I know, the big man broke in. Heard it on the news. Big story. Nick was unmoved, stare fixed on the wall to his left again. Simon continued. You see, Nick, the barrels were empty, but they found trace DNA that matched the boys on the outside of the barrels and in the socks that were hanging up in that storage unit. Nick's expression was somewhere between confusion and anger. I know that, he whispered. How? Well, it makes sense that it would be. I didn't know that they matched it or whatever. His voice was cracking a little. What happened to the boys, Nick? I tried, you know, Nick said, suddenly a million miles away. I cut it down to once each year. One big trip, that's it. When it was done, I would go to my place up north. Doc. It's so beautiful, snow everywhere, and so still, and so, so quiet. I'd go up there after my trip for the children, take myself away, so I wouldn't hurt nobody. Go to work with my hands, build things, just get away. I knew it might happen again. What happened to them, Nick? A tear rolled down Nick's red cheek. I couldn't put them back together this time, Doc. Well, we have one last present for you. One last story. We hope you're enjoying this Chris Massacre. Hopefully these stories will help keep you awake through the dark night until Santa arrives. Because that's the only way you'll catch him. This next story is by Immortal Alexander. You can find him doing cool stuff over at HorrorMade.com, which he runs along with his wife. 
the lovely and extremely talented Jeanette Andromeda, whose art you've seen in this show and whose interviews you've heard at the end of the episodes for season seven. Jeanette and Alexander will actually be taking over one of our other shows, the Ninth Story Podcast, starting next year. Now, get a little closer, bundle up a little tighter, because here comes our last tale of the year. The Dangers of December by Immortal Alexander of the Ninth Story Podcast. When winter comes, death is always near. If the biting winds and the bitter cold don't kill you, the monsters hiding in the dark, damp places will. One fateful December, a scraggly old homeless man dressed in a tattered red coat made his way through the abandoned tunnels of New York City. At least, they were supposed to be abandoned. When you made it past the hot steam and the pitch-black tubes filled with festering rats, you would see a faint glow not two miles down. There, where all the hope is abandoned, you would find light, electric light that was stolen from the city dwellers above. Stolen for those who have become forgotten. This homeless fellow with his dirty white beard and glimmering eyes bore presents for his fellow castaways. Dirty children with their dirty pets get glimmering toys that were also unwanted. At the city dump, they looked nasty and full of grime, but with a little spit and shine, they looked magical under the incandescent light bulbs hanging precariously from above. The children delighted in their new toys. Thank you, Santa they would say to the old homeless man. I'm not Santa, lovely children, but do enjoy the gifts. Then he would make his way deeper into the abyss, to the adults congregated around half-complete chess sets and playing card tables, using decks missing a few suits. The homeless fellow with the white beard and red tattered coat would little by little complete their misshapen games with the missing pieces he would find along his travels. He would also distribute a flask of brandy when he came upon it. He would do anything to cheer up the lost, the broken, and the discarded folks of this ramshackled dwelling. Not quite a home, but a fine home it made for those who have nothing. The homeless man traveled a bit farther down the tunnels to spy if any new visitors had gotten lost or decided to travel to the less safe parts of this maze of darkness. The light faded to pitch black midnight. Not even the eyes of the kind old homeless man could see through this patch of darkness. He knew his way well enough and needed no light to find it. If there came a path he was unfamiliar with, he would simply remove small stones from his pocket and throw them into the blackness just to listen. The sound it made told him all he needed to know. Air shaft, it was not safe. Then, from the deepest, darkest corners of nothingness, came a low growl and a screech. The homeless fellow held fast. He was not afraid of the dark, but he knew not what hid in its most secret places. The man grabbed a thick pipe from within his coat and held it tight in his right hand and felt his way through the dark with his left. As he got closer, the sound grew louder and more ferocious. The screeching and growling echoed through the tunnels in a manner that played tricks on his ears. Was it in front of him? 
to his side or right behind him. Then the noise stopped abruptly. Eerie and ominous silence overtook him. The homeless man could hear only his own breathing, his own heartbeat. The homeless fellow was struck from some unseen foe, sending him flying backwards. He slammed into the side of the tunnel, causing bright light to fill his vision, and his pipe to clatter noisily to the ground. A metallic clanging that rattled on endlessly. The man slid to the ground and heard the growling grow loud in front of him. It approached slowly. He could hear what sounded like large paws stepping forward, scratching the stone floor as it advanced. Then he heard what sounded like leathery wings unfurling and flapping gently in the dark. The homeless man remained motionless, seeming to resolve himself to his fate. The creature leapt forth with eyes that now glowed like burning coals, illuminating the pitch-black tunnel, making it look more like the gates of hell. All the homeless man could see was endless rows of sharp teeth and millions of gleaming red eyes. Then, chomp! The light was out. Just like that, all grew silent and dim once more. Then, more chomping and chewing commenced. The homeless man's ribcage was splayed wide open, with the head of the monster buried deep within. It was not the creature that was chomping and slurping, though, but the ribs of the jolly homeless fellow that had teeth of its own. Once it was done with its dinner, the ribcage released the headless beast as the homeless fellow patted his parasitic friend. The man stood and brushed off clumps of matted fur from his tattered coat. These were the remnants of the lifeless creature. Then he gave his nose a little tap, and in a twinkle of light, he was gone with his deep bellowing voice echoing in the dark. Happy holidays to all, and to all a frightful night. The Wicked Library is created and shared for free, but there are costs involved in its production. The Wicked Library now has a Patreon account. Head on over to thewickedlibrary.com for more details and to support the show you love. We really do count on your support in order to make the show possible. The Wicked Library is sponsored by the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast, brought to you by a team of storytellers and whiskey lovers. They bring culture to life through storytelling every week. You can find them over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. You can, of course, also find them in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. They also have a production of Beowulf, fully scored with music by someone those who are fans of the Wicked Library would be familiar with, Nico Viteze. Find links in the show notes or head on over to legendsmythsandwhiskey.com to find out more. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode microphones. Find out more information about the great products over at Rode.com. That's R-O-D-E dot com. And big thanks to Rode for helping us make this show possible. Complete show notes, including credits for music, Art, story, and narration can be found at thewickedlibrary.com by clicking on the appropriate episode number. You can also find a link to our Twitter account, our Facebook page, and a link to rate and review the show in iTunes. Reviews mean a lot to us. 
please let us know what you think of the show. 